Be sure they match the color to the nacelle housings. Planning to sit on the hull and pose for some postcards? Maybe. <laughs> God, she's beautiful. And fast. Warp 4.5 next Thursday. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 45 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we go back in time to those halcyon days, and I mean the early 2000s, and the premiere of a show simply called Enterprise, and the controversy that sprang up in certain quarters of fandom about its updated retro aesthetic. We'll get into it with my guests, probably the nicest people you'll ever likely to podcast with from the Rad Network. It's Ruth and Darren Sutherland. Hi, guys. Hi, happy to be here. Great to be on the show with you, Siskoid. I wasn't inviting you because sometimes you don't know that someone is a Star Trek fan and you don't want to ask. I don't know. <laughs> but you do have a, a show called Trekker Talk, which has nothing to do with Star Trek. It's about yeah, it's about Trekker, the comic. You know, maybe that's why I never thought, oh, I guess you know, they're not actually Trekkies or Trekkers, but, you know, behind the curtain here, we are part of a group chat where we talk about Doctor Who and Star Trek, and that's where I found out, well, I guess you guys are fans of this franchise as well. That's right. It's glad to have a lot of different ways to connect. Yeah, it is. And it's one of those things where we've listened to your show and love your show, and we're really happy to be on it now to talk about some aspect of Star Trek. It's you know, one of the most important shows in our lives. It's my favorite show, and it's a very important show to both of us, and you will get to hear more about that. I guess I could say the same about me, and I'm sorry it took 45 episodes to get us together on this, but it is your first time, so being your first time, you have to go through that quiz to prove your Star Trek cred. Well, prove. <laughs> you don't need to prove it. <laughs> Just expose what kind of cred it actually is. And so uh, I will ask you, how did you guys get into Star Trek and why is it important to you? Well, growing up, I read a lot of science fiction and adventure books, and I was aware of Star Trek in the world, but really hadn't been exposed to it much until I started dating and spending time with Darren. And I quickly learned he was a very big fan, and I knew that Star Trek too. The Wrath of Khan was coming to the theaters soon, back in the day, and his family had a few videotapes, I think maybe 10 episodes or so of the original series, and I knew that I wanted to see all of those episodes before seeing the movie so that I could understand and enjoy the film more. I didn't want to just go into the film cold. I wanted to get some background with the TV series, and I have really fond memories of watching those with Darren and getting to you know, get my introduction to the characters in that world and having a lot of good conversations about how the characters interacted. 
And quickly, I was fascinated by Spock, and I loved the down-to-earth wisdom and humor and heart of McCoy, and really admired the action and command that Kirk brought to the show. So it was a really nice introduction. I was glad to have Darren with me to help me discover that world. You make it sound like you're a late adopter, but this is what, like high school for you guys? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's really late for me. Uh <laughs> That's true. His roots are earlier. So it, I love hearing Ruth tell that story because, like you were sort of saying, not you not realizing we were Star Trek fans because sometimes, you know, you, you can know someone but just not make that connection. Ruth and I were dating a few months. It wasn't very long before she learned I was a Star Trek fan. So... um that it started coming out, you know, pretty quickly because uh, it's been part of my life as far back as I can remember. So um, I was a toddler when the show originally started. I was born in '65, so I don't remember the show when it was on originally. But my father was a fan of the show, and he watched it during its original run. You know, he tells me stories of me being in the room when he was watching it, that sort of thing. But I don't count that. But what I do remember very vividly is 1970. I was five, I was in Head Start, and Star Trek was new in syndication, and I would rush home after Head Start each day to watch Star Trek, and it just immediately became a part of my life and remained a part of my life ever since. I mean, I, it literally, it was a big part of my life. Ruth has seen the, the drawings from when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, they're <laughs> adorable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember everything throughout the 70s. You know, it's like the animated series, the, the talk about Star Trek Phase 2 and being excited, the motion picture when it first came out. So that was just sort of my entire 70s. And then thankfully starting to date Ruth. And then from 1982 on, we were fans together. That's cool. And then just in time for TNG and and further shows. Speaking of which, I have to ask, which iteration of the show is your favorite is it your first one or did you have a later love oh for me very first introduction so the original series loved the stories the cast the storytelling the adventures so really great nostalgia with that show still love it today yeah for me it's definitely the original series i mean to me that's the beginning that's the the format the foundation of the entire series so that, that's really what's important to me. And it actually, you know, it it's a part of everything that's inside of me. I mean, it's the Vulcan idea of, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. I use that phrase, you know, in my life, live long and prosper. You know, those are mottos in my life. So yeah, it, it's one of those things. It's definitely the original series. And I might cheat almost like Gene Hendricks and say anything with the original cast, but I'll, I'll say the original series. <laughs> it's okay. We can count the movies. Um <laughs> So what about your favorite character from that iteration or any iteration, really? I will say it's a really tough choice, but I'm going to go with Spock. Uh, I always see him as part of the set, part of the trio. Uh, it's hard to separate him out, but really was fascinated from the beginning with my introduction to Spock. How about you, Darren? Yeah, it's uh, Ruth even used uh, one of the words I wrote in my notes because we didn't look at each other's notes, so we would <laughs> not know what each of us was going to say. So, But I, I used the word trio as well. Uh -huh. So for me, it's Captain Kirk. Cap Captain Kirk was my favorite character growing up, but... It's Captain Kirk as part of the trio. I think Kirk is at his best with Spock and McCoy, and I think that's true for each of them. Each of them is better because of the other two. What about your favorite alien species? Does it follow that it must be the Vulcans, or...? 
Well, you guessed right for me, because for me, it is the Vulcans. So even though I chose Captain Kirk as my favorite character, the Vulcans always fascinated me. You know, Spock was just, I mean, to use the word fascinating, he was a fascinating character. I really loved everything about him. And, uh, you know, in the subsequent spinoff series, it's, you know, T'Pol. I just love that character in Enterprise. And Tuvok, I love that character in Voyager. You know, Mark Leonard as Sarek. The Vulcans are just really important characters. And like I mentioned, you know, their little mottos of Idik and live long and prosper. That's just important. I have fun thinking about this one. I think there's a lot of great choices there, but I'm going to settle on the Romulans. I absolutely love their ship design, love that they're kind of related to the Vulcans. I kind of see them as having uh, ancestors in the back, but the two groups took different paths and their societies differed. So I liked kind of the sociology, how uh, peoples can go different directions and have different philosophies and different natures in their future. So I'm going to choose the Romulans. That's a good decision, too. That's a good choice. (laughs) And I think it it may be the first time somebody's mentioned the Romulans in this quiz. I'm not sure. Ah, they're so so cool. Why not them? Yeah. I'm glad I chose. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I always think, oh, it's going to be Klingons. It's going to, you know, there are some very popular ones. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will surprise me with an oddball choice. But uh, yeah, you'd think Romulans would you know, make more of a more of an impact because they're, you know, some of the original villains of the show. So you guys are old schoolers, but we are talking about the show Enterprise, which is old school and then not because it is the most recent of that wave of shows from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And at the same time, it takes place before TOS. And that's really the question that we're asking today. Uh, we're, we're sort of exploring that controversy from back then. And I didn't have any problems with it, spoiler, but some people felt it just did not look or feel like the technology, the sets, the costumes or whatever were clearly from before TOS. You have no idea how much I'm restraining myself from knocking you on your ass. So the question is, do they look too advanced compared to TOS? Do they not look like they could follow or evolve towards TOS's aesthetic? That, that's like the open question before we look at any of the specifics. I'm throwing that question to you. Did you have a problem with how Enterprise looked more modern? Or did you feel that, no, it, it perfectly fit that timeline? So that's interesting. Uh, we might have been the wrong couple to have on for this episode, Siskoid, because if we all agree it, it's going to be a really quick episode. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't need to be a debate. I think we're debunking it. You know, we're. There you go. I mean, I remember at the time some people on on online or in news groups and and that kind of thing, and people were accosting me because they knew I was a, uh, a Trek fan. Yeah. Were accosting me in the hall at work to talk to me about this and to to vent their frustration with it. And I, in a way, it is still, I guess it's still relevant because now we have Discovery and we're going to get Strange right. New Worlds and they've updated things even more. So, yes, you know, so it's still a problem for some people. But at the same time, I mean, television has to evolve. I mean, you can't show something that looks like it was made in the 50s if we're, if the 60s were the future. So did you read my notes? <laughs> I, no, no, go ahead. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't want to steal your thunder here. So. You're not stealing my thunder. It's good fun. (laughs) 
So what is your, you know, your, your, your top level view of all this? I would say I'm happy with their approach and we'll talk about some more examples and details coming up, but I believe that the show creators, writers put some thought into it. You know, they really considered timeline and some technology and what could have existed or what could have been a precursor. Uh, so I appreciate it anytime where you can tell some thought goes into the process. And I saw it there. So I, I admired that. Yeah, I agree. I remember those conversations and those discussions to Ciscoid back in the day. And I, you know, I liked Enterprise. I appreciated what it was doing as a prequel. And, and I think part of the problem was, I think if you look at the design of things, it looks, yes, that the design is an attempt to be a prequel, to be something from the past of the original series. However, the state of special effects at the time, the show doesn't look like it was made before 1966, and it shouldn't have. They used modern effects, and that makes the show look more modern, even though the designs, I feel, were more retro than they were given credit for. And, and I think that's because the special effects just looked more modern. Like, people are forgetting the if the end result is TOS, then the... The start is NASA, mm, you know, mm -hmm. and it is a merging of those two ideas. How does NASA eventually become Starfleet is sort of the the aesthetic there, because it does, I mean, the Enterprise set looks a lot more like, I mean, just look at Sigbay, for example. I mean, it looks like contemporary spacecraft interiors, bigger, but still, or somewhere between, you know, like the International Space Station and... A submarine, maybe. <laughs> That's a word I wrote down. Submarine, yeah, it has that sort of feel about it. And, and you're right. You see things like coat hooks on the wall. You don't see that, you know, in the later series. It's, it looks earlier. The costumes look more like astronauts. The Navy suits or Air Force suits. The, the ship itself has more, you know, it's, it's got less like clean surfaces and that kind of thing. It looks more like it's, it's got a lot of little panels and that kind of thing, which you would see in a contemporary spacecraft. So people are forgetting that they are trying to morph one aesthetic into another. And when I was looking at, like I watched like the, the, the first two or four episodes in preparation for this, just to get a sense of the sets again. And I felt like it looked a lot more like NASA or like movies that are doing space program, you know, like in the, the near future Ad Astra or mm -hmm. uh, Gravity or, you know, stuff like that, than it does the original series or, you know, and, and at the same time, they're sort of also looking towards the TNG DS9 Voyager era, just the way the the bridge is set up, you know, where the consoles are, that it just may, may hark back to or hark forward to ships, you know, further down the line as well. Good summary. Let's look at those sets. What can we infer from looking at this, the sets? Are we seeing elements that will become TOS? So the bridge is the number one set, of course, on any Star Trek show. What did you think of the, the bridge here? How do you rate the bridge? Yeah, it, it looks very much more like a precursor to the TOS bridge than, for instance, it does the TNG bridge. You see, you know, it's, it's much more sort of, you know, small view screens, uh, people looking down, you know, like they might in a submarine, a lot more nuts and bolts, like you were saying, a lot more, you know, lights and switches than you sort of get with the uh, TNG era. So it, it looks very much like something that could advance to the original series. I agree. So it makes me think about kind of 
military craft design or the astronauts, like you were saying, early spacefaring ventures. So just more basic, more rudimentary, and not as you know sophisticated or polished or mm-hmm. shiny like we would see later. Yeah, it's still got that railing that goes around <laughs> the, the pit, you know, so the railing is there. And I, I was looking at, like I don't know, like episode three or something, and T'Pol looks through a viewer yes. that, that's a lot like Spock's, isn't it? Like that. Yeah, absolutely. That periscope on a console. But you're right. It is very push-button. TOS has a very strange design when you think about it. Very analog. It switches that go, you know, little, little cranks that go snap. <laughs> it's weird. And nothing is labeled. Uh, it feels like a very odd and alien aesthetic. Whereas here, it's still got these little push buttons. The, all the view screens just look like computer screens that you've right. put on a wall. So it feels more... It feels closer to today, and yet it is still very analog in a way that if a show were made today, and I think Discovery's done this, today our screens are, are not analog at all. We, we, it's all touch screens, and uh, and we, we swipe, and we can do all sorts of things with our, just with our fingers. And that wasn't yet something during Enterprise, so they went with something that was a lot more, you know, little fades, uh, you know, like all sorts of very analog controls. No, I agree completely, Siskoid. And, you know, with both the original series and with Enterprise, you know, you named two things, two sources they went to for uh, the original series design. They spoke with NASA designers and NASA designers stopped by and looked at the sets and they got some input from them. And the same thing with uh, Enterprise. You know, they were going for something more cramped and a, a submarine type design. And they spoke with designers from the Navy. So, and I think you see those aesthetics come out. And I think that, you know, submarines as a design leading into something more NASA spaceship as a design is, is a nice progression that they chose consciously to use between Enterprise to TOS. And I think it's, uh, it harks back to the way they use the Romulans in mm-hmm. TOS where that first battle uh, that we see in Balance of Terror is a submarine battle. It, you know, the Enterprise is supposed to be a ship, and it, the cloaked ship is supposed to be a submarine. And we right. get that again in Wrath of Khan, you know, that kind yes. of idea. Uh, one of the best episodes of the original series. Love that one. So what about engineering? Uh, you know, engineering is a really good one to bring up because, again, you see compared to the original series, the engine room is very big and spacious. You know, you sort of see into the engines in the back. But in Enterprise, you've got you know, much more cramped engineering, you know, a lot more people sort of on hand having to take care of everything. So again, it's another nice earlier design because it looks, it looks much more like, you know, the bowels of a ship, you know, the engine room of a ship and the people down there, you know, keeping everything oiled and keeping the, you know, the pressure gauges right. And it sort of gives you that feeling. Yeah, more of a mechanical approach. Mm. Uh, I like that it, the engine, you can actually see it. And the engine is horizontal rather than vertical. Ah. In TOS, it was, I mean, I imagine, it. you know, when you saw it, it was sort of that reddish chamber beyond, you know, there was like a, this, this, I don't know, this chain link fence. And then on the other side, there was like this red tunnel, you know, right. and that right. was supposed to be the engine. Uh, and so, th- and this is similar because it is also horizontal, whereas TNG had it vertical. And it, uh, there's a pinkish glow in those little windows, those little bright windows that has a pinkish glow, which makes you think, okay, dilithium crystals are pink or. Yeah. Ah, uh huh. To me, that was a very similar design, even though, 
like the engine was much smaller than what the mm-hmm. Enterprise had. And then I feel like if you go forward to TNG, now they've got a completely different design. It's it's upward. It can be jettisoned more easily. It's a tube in, in that other orientation. Maybe it's smaller because by then, you know, engines are more efficient and whatever. Advanced. But by TOS, they just made bigger engines. That makes perfect sense to me. I'm glad you had watched those recent episodes to be able to chime in on that. It's nice to bring back some memories. Yeah, I think the one set that is very, very different from any other similar is, is Sigbay. Sigbay looks, I mean, it doesn't even look like any other set inside Enterprise. <laughs> it's got a different color scheme. It's it's completely white. It looks very NASA, whereas everything else like gunmetal. But also it's got to have like this zoo inside. Flox <laughs> <laughs> has to keep animals in there. So what do you think of Sigbay in, in this series? Well, I, just mentioning Sick Bay, the thing we have to mention is Phlox. You just mentioned his name. What a wonderful character and so well acted. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a delight every time he's on screen. Uh, and, you know, you talk about things in the show, the aesthetics of the show being more analog. And you just look at Phlox and Phlox is a more analog doctor. You know, he's very much a hands-on doctor, you know, figuring things out. He's got tools. So he makes me think a lot of bones. But yeah, the sick bay itself, you know, I mean, it's very utilitarian, very functional. Uh, it's, you know, it's there to serve that specific purpose. It feels, like you said, he has to have room for his animals and, and specimens in order to uh, help uh, do testing and all of that sort of stuff. So he, he's got a lot of stuff packed in there. I like that he's bringing in different kinds of science and knowledge and uh, connections with different creatures uh, to help with healing. So mm. kind of the different different race contribution. So there's a retro aspect of that, is the uh, very retro aspect of using actual animals and creatures more. He's using leeches, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's from the Middle Ages. Yeah, well, I never <laughs> thought of that element as part of the retroness and the analog, you know, aesthetic of the show, but... You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it fits that theme yeah. for sure. I'm sure, it, I mean, probably in design, they only wanted him to be, okay, this is our first alien doctor and let's really make him alien. And he's the he's the alien race that we're going to find everything out about, you know, it's like every show has one, like a new race to explore. So he's that. But in the process, I mean, they touched on that same theme. That's pretty cool. It is. Uh, I like that. You know, it just came to us as we were all three sort of talking about that. But look at the difference between from Phlox to the doctor in Voyager. I mean, what a difference from a very analog, hands-on doctor to a doctor who, you know, isn't even there. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's really an, an interesting dynamic. Is himself a tool. Yeah, in many ways. So, <laughs> but then uh, I really want to talk about the personal quarters. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of uh, Archer's office and and Mm. cabin and and those kinds of spaces. I mean, I love the dog in the show. And so there's a place for the dog. We've seen Kirk's quarters quite a lot. We've seen quarters on TOS. Did you notice any similarities or how do you rate this part of the set? Yeah, I think the quarters are another good example. And we do get to see, you know, a handful of them. Like you said, we see Archer's the most, which, you know, is expected. We always saw Kirk's the most. Uh, Archer's is, you know, bigger than most of the others, but it's certainly smaller than Kirk's. You know, he doesn't have uh, that sort of room. Again, it feels very functional. It, it feels almost like you were at a business hotel, you know, where you had the little suite that's got 
you know, the, the wraparound desk around the wall, you know, to keep everything compact and efficient, but you got to have a place to sleep and a place to work and a place to stretch, you know, it sort of has all that, but in a micro tail type of uh, <laughs> mode. Uh, so, and I'm glad you mentioned the dog because mm-hmm. we love the dog in the show too. That's another nice sort yeah, of touch animal. of home, yeah, touch, touch of home. earth. Uh, but then we also, you know, we get to see to Paul's quarters, which of course is very much like you would expect for a Vulcan, very clean, simple, that sort of thing. We see a couple of the others. I, I, I think we see Hoshi's, don't we, at some point in time? Uh, may, which, yeah. yeah, which I think is smaller. I think I remember there's a time when she's um, when she thinks she's seeing things or hearing things that nobody else can. I remember there's an episode about that. I think we see her room, and it, I mean it really looks small. It's very but cramped. <laughs> they probably built a tiny set just because oh, we need this quickly. But but yeah, I think they're very functional. Like I said, I like the microtel sort of description. That's sort of how they feel. Yeah, keeping it basic. Just the light fixtures. There's a lot of light fixtures mm. on the on this show. You know, it looks like real lamps. Um, <laughs> Well, the other shows, it's like you don't, you're not always sure where the, the light is coming from, but low ceilings, small window. The windows are much smaller. They are, yes. Curved and so as to keep the glass from breaking. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, this is just like on a ship or on a, I guess submarines don't really have windows, but you know, so that kind of idea. And bunks, you know, it's very, very much, it's much closer to what you'd see on a boat. Uh, one element I noticed in Archer's room is this kind of, corrugated metal division it's like a you know a partition that has holes in it and you see that kind of design in tos you do yeah that's a good point you mentioned hotel rooms but i seem to remember some uh, <laughs> student apartments that yeah. had the same idea where you yeah. they divided the kitchen and the living room with just this half wall and right. then the half wall might have like a little shelf and then this fake piece of you know, it might be like uh, like foggy glass or it might, you know. So it's that kind of idea that was also in Kirk's quarters. So yeah. this is, I agree with Ruth that they did put some thought into this. And they went, well, how can, what would be the modern, and modern in the sense of both modern television and, and making closer to what we see today, what would be that design element? Looking for ways to make nods to the past. Yeah. Right. And it's very subtle. You know, like I was watching the show for this. <laughs> exclusively you know mm-hmm. it's like i may be enjoying the story and the acting and the whatever but i'm looking at the screen for this specifically jumps out at me at this point nice nice i can't say that i that didn't happen back in the day it's too long ago for me to remember my reactions but yeah it's there yeah, that's a good point i mean i remember watching the show back when it was originally on and i didn't agree with all of the criticisms because i felt the show felt like a prequel i mean not perfectly like a prequel but you know as much like a prequel as you could hope for i felt and it's interesting we've rewatched the show or at least some episodes of the show in more recent years because we like it a lot uh, but not recently enough maybe to have watched it for those reasons but that's really neat i'm glad you did and could share that first uh, you know very recent knowledge I think a lot of those touches work on kind of a subconscious level, like you're not quite a, really aware of them, but they just all add up to give you a sense or a feel of the setting. And, you know, when you take a moment and step back like you're doing now, is you get to really pinpoint and call out a lot of those things that really add up to give you the big picture of the show. Because some were pretty, like, more obvious, let's say, and fit the theme that we're sort of developing here of the analog experience because mm. I'm thinking of like did not occur to me like before we talked about this, but we see a mess hall, but we see a lot of the captain's dining room, right? 
Mm-hmm. And there's always talk of chef. And yes. Yes. Eventually, we find out that's that's Riker somehow. But well, not really. But, <laughs> you know, Riker does play that role in a holodeck simulation quite amusingly because this was sort of the, you know, the the Maris or the you know the the figure you never see on the show, the chef. Yeah, they're being served real food. There's a chef. There's a kitchen. Whereas right. every other Star Trek seemed to have food dispensers and replicators. Right. That's a big change. It's the analog idea of that, just right. like. Like one of the things I find like pretty obvious was the ready room or whatever. If you think of like more modern shows, they would often have models of the various ships. In this, there's drawings of the previous enterprises. The drawing being the more analog version of the 3D printed (laughs) ship or what, you know, what, however they made those in, um, like say on the Enterprise E. So that's always kind of the idea that they're going with. What is the more analog or the earlier version of this? Even though, of course, you could make models in the 22nd century. Exactly. I mean, I think you hit it right there, right, Siskoid, because they do seem to always consciously think, what would be an earlier version of this thing from the original series? Even if sometimes it didn't make sense for that maybe to be the earlier version because we had advanced at that point in time so much between 1966 and 2001 that they could certainly imagine we would advance a lot beyond that before the time of Enterprise. But at the same time, they wanted a show that fit within the continuity of the original series as a prequel. And I I think they did those things intentionally, and I think it works. You can always say that, you know, we lost technology, we lost continuity because of like that Third World War Hmm. um, that happens in the 21st century. You know, Hmm. you you could say things were lost or aesthetics were lost, and maybe we weren't doing iPhone, you know, finger scrolling by then (laughs) because that was a technology that was lost or something Mm -hmm. or fell out of favor. There was like a break in that technological continuity. You can always say that. There you go. Um, I'm saying it. So (laughs) the other big set that we can compare is really the uh, the shuttle bay. We're used to the huge shuttle bays that are also cargo bays and, and the ship going out of a force field and that kind of thing. But in this show, again, we're in submarine land where that little shuttle pod, you know, it's sort of in a pit and you got to access it. You know, you pull on some stairs and you you go down those stairs and it's a little bit like there's a little mini sub in a pool right special compartment for it i agree but i'm glad you mentioned this shuttle pod room i hadn't thought about that but you're right you know you look in just the original series and you know when they when they would show the the galileo getting ready to head out you know it's obviously a, a miniature and it looks like it's in this huge place you know like you said that's both the launching bay, but also, you know, storage and, and all that sort of stuff. But in Enterprise, you see those couple of shuttle pods that they have really packed in there and you can barely fit between them. You know, it's like, it's all the room they have. And I always like that in the shuttle pods in, in Enterprise, they're designed like the ones in the original series because you can't quite stand up inside of them. So, you know, it's like they're smaller, which sort of fits with the Galileo 7 later on because, you know, you can't really stand up straight in it. It's not as tall enough. So that's neat. Any notes on any of the other sets we might have seen? We, we go inside an cell in one, in one episode. We've got, of course, the one transporter room. Yes. Little, that little chamber. We've got, uh, you know, the decontamination room for, you know, sexy stuff. So uh, <laughs> did, did you have any notes on any of the other sets that are presented on the show? 
Just, I like how the transporter room looks, but I like that they more often relied on their shuttle pod to get places. Because again, more of an analog, old-fashioned way of doing things because the teleporter was newer. And I think, you know, just thinking about the other sets like you were mentioning, it's from my standpoint, I don't remember other specifics, but what I always remember about them is they always felt very utilitarian and comfort wasn't the purpose of them. So I always, you know, to me, that was Enterprise's look with the sets. Yeah, I mean, they had like these corridors were sort of rounded like tubes, just like you'd see on a space station, Mm -hmm. like a modern one or a contemporary one, I should say. And, you know, you had like bars to hold on to when the ship shook. And so, yeah, it felt more utilitarian, yes. But also, this is the kind of stuff that other ships should have had. Yeah, necessities. (laughs) It it had more necessities. (laughs) Yeah, I I guess we get used to it, you know, after a a hundred years or so. It's like people used to always say, why didn't Kirk have a (laughs) seatbelt? Right. And then the one time we do see a seatbelt, it's kind of silly. So, yes. (laughs) One more thing. Ah, our new weapons. They're called phase pistols. They have two settings, stun and kill. It would be best not to confuse them. Uh, Let's talk about costumes and props, because those two had an aesthetic and had to be updated or retrograded, depending on how you want to see it. What did you think of these uniforms and how they compare to the future of Starfleet? Well, I saw the Enterprise uniforms, again, a word we've used before, very functional, very utilitarian. So, you know, very much inspired, I think, from astronauts or working clothes, you know, very practical. Yeah, yeah, working clothes. I was going to say, you know, it looks like a, you know, if you were going out to uh, the mine or something like that, you know, it's the type of a jumpsuit or something you would wear. I mean, to me, it's, you know, you get that sort of plain design again, sort of very functional. You have pockets, my goodness, you know, when do we see pockets on uniforms in Star Trek? But we do in Enterprise. Uh, And then, like you said, you get the plain colors, but then you still got the nice accent stripe to give us an idea of, you know, the command gold versus, you know, the the sciences versus the engineering and security and such. So you you still sort of had that idea, which I liked that they they had that sort of precursor. And plus, they, they kept it in line with the original series again, because in the original series, the command line is gold. And in Enterprise, again, the command line is gold. So you have that there because they flipped that with the next generation and made the command line red. You get that again, consistent Enterprise leading into the original series. Calls attention to itself in in the sense that I feel like that cranberry, that cranberry red stripe does not show off well against the the dark blue uniforms. (laughs) So so maybe, you know, that's because it is... A throwback and we know what we're referencing but in reality would you have designed that uniform so that the stripe is not so visible it's interesting i agree with that because it's an odd stripe it's an odd placement it's it's not as sort of functional as maybe the rest of the uniform itself is by having it sort of go up and around the shoulders and all that sort of stuff you know i guess uh, they were looking for a little bit of um, maybe color because of the you know all of them being blue otherwise and of course i always felt they went with blue because they were going with that u.s navy sort of design mm-hmm. so navy blue i've always thought maybe blue wasn't the best color for it to be the one color everyone had but at the same time you know, I, I like that attempt at that uh, common aesthetic that they created. And it's a bit of a dark palette. Yes. Across the board, because, you know, the gunmetal grays of the of most sets, the costumes are this dark blue. 
at times, like I was looking at it and I was like, yeah, maybe this was part of the uh, the problem the show faced in terms of its early unpopularity. It just looked very uh, neutral as opposed to the popping colors of T- TOS. It's very, very colorful. Oh, yes. And then TNG, you know, was also colorful, although there's a lot of dusty pink uh, <laughs> going on in beige because it was the 80s. You know, eventually they went for the, uh, you know, like the, the, the gray costumes. Yes. Black, black and gray. You know, this is more the aesthetic of the time where we're darkening the color palettes across the board. So when we get to this show, it becomes a very dark grayish, bluish look. But they still have, you know, they've got the pips that we'll see not in TOS, but that we'll see in TNG and beyond, mm-hmm. uh, little square pips. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they've got the mission patch, just mm-hmm. like NASA. So mm-hmm. it, it's a hybrid. And then we get other costumes because those jackets, they wear jackets when they go on away missions. And the jackets have a texture that is not unlike the texture you see on TOS uniforms, especially like in the reboot movies, you can actually see the texture. So I feel like there is a bit of that in there as well. And of course, the EV suits, the the space yes. suits, like they're bronze. Bronze, colored, yeah. I sort of thought bronze, yeah. Which isn't unlike immediately thought of Spock in that reddish space suit in, in the motion picture. I always liked the EV suit. I mean, to me, I, I'm glad you mentioned the motion picture because you're right. I could imagine the EV suits in Enterprise being the precursor of what Spock uses in. The motion picture. It doesn't look like the precursor to what they wear in the Tholian web, for instance, right. in in uh, Star Trek, the original series. I've always forgiven them for that because I I thought, oh, this, but this is a really nice design. It looks, it looks in the future, but not too far in the future. I thought it was a really nice design. I thought it was a really nice color scheme. But I'm glad you mentioned Spock's uh, suit in the motion picture because yeah, that clicks now in my mind perfectly. So I like that. I, I really like the the EV suits, and I'm glad you mentioned the jackets. You know, I had forgotten about the jackets, but yeah, those were nice. I, I've got to go back and look for a screenshot or an episode to to re-see those. I'd forgotten. Yeah, they're in the pilot. They're in the first one when they go to that planet with uh, they go to Rigel and it's snowing and they've got the jackets. Uh, I love that scene. Any excuse to rewatch that episode, I'll just go do that tomorrow. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then there's the props. So I want to talk about the communicators. I want to talk about the tricorders. I want to talk about the guns. How did you think the, the mission gear compared to TOS? Yeah, I would say, again, I thought they did a good job of consciously designing things that would come before. You know, the the phaser, you know, it's designed similar to the original series. It looks more like a pistol. So you get that sort of effect. But it's, you know, it's bigger and bulkier. So that makes sense to me. I think it's really nicely clean design so it looks sort of still very futuristic so i like that uh the communicators uh, if i remember right the communicators are are smaller than in the original series but uh, i don't remember exactly i think i don't remember them flipping but maybe that you can tell me if they did or yeah they, they didn't. flipped okay they flipped. good they flipped so yeah. good i'm glad so um but I, I can remember sort of almost what they looked like, a little bit like a shaver or something like that. But I'm, maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering something there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you're thinking of the tricorders, which oh. I think is the biggest change. Because uh, looking at it, I was like confused as to which prop was which. But then I looked at pictures of the props, and okay, no, they're completely different. And the, the, the tricorder is like this little wand uh, with a little, uh, like a screen, and then there's the shaver bit where. You, <laughs> that you mean, you know, like the teeth of the shaver on top of a little screen, and then you're holding like this wand. It looks kind of the same size as the communicator, and of course, it's much smaller. 
that that big cassette tape player <laughs> that right. TOS the TOS guy used to to, to, to use. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad you can share that with me. And I'm sure you're right about my, my mismemory at that point in time. I can imagine now that they're trying to do a hybrid between, you know, uh, McCoy's analyzer and the tricorder, trying to combine those two together. I can just sort of imagine that in my head at this point in time. I've got to go watch an episode with that in it because I don't remember well enough. But uh, that's great to think about. And, you know, it just brings back memories. I mean, you know, we, we love the way the communicator looks in the original series and the way the tricorder looks in the original series, you know, they're just, they're just so neat, even though it's got a little teeny tiny, you know, black and white screen or something like that, but it just, it looks neat. So yeah, they would have had trouble trying to design an earlier version of that, knowing how much we had already progressed. I mean, 2001, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we had Palm Pilots and everything long before then we had those back in the nineties. So it was hard to design something that looked uh, bigger and bulkier than a tricorder, but. I guess they didn't even try. <laughs> a backpack. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, no, no. So, I mean, that is the biggest to me. I mean, a lot of people, they're, they're going, oh, the sets don't look, the, the engine doesn't look. No, 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 no. The, the biggest change is really this personal gear because we've gotten things so much smaller now. Yes. A calculator from back then is bigger than than any of our portable I'm going to use the word phone but it's more than a phone isn't it so oh, gosh oh, yeah absolutely. it's a little handheld computer my goodness it's a exactly it's a you know it's a camera it's a uh, it's everything <laughs> so the processing power that you could imagine the 22nd and beyond centuries having you know it makes me think that maybe those tricorders had a lot more going for them than we understand See, I like that. That fits perfectly with what you were saying earlier, Siskoid, about how maybe sometimes we have to take a slight step backwards. Maybe they took, in the by the time of the original series, they took a slight step backwards in size in order to create a much more functional device. So that's what we'll think. Be better able to analyze things. I'm sure they can... I'm th- am I misremembering that maybe there were scenes in TOS where... You know, they were analyzing soil samples or whatever by putting it like inside or it might have like, you know, analysis properties in the little box. Uh, No, you're right about that. I remember Spock doing that. Yeah. Yeah. You'd open the front of the tricorder and put something inside. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been too long since I've watched, you know, all of Enterprise. But I'd be interested in checking out how those two shows actually handle the tricorder and just what kind of information it gives you. Because if your little wand in, in Enterprise is only giving you, you know, like a, a certain range of information, mm-hmm. a certain amount of analysis uh, that is possible in that century, then it might be small. Yeah. But then by TOS, you can do so much more and learn much more. And then by TNG, you know, it's still a bigger tricorder than what they had in Enterprise. Mm. Uh, but that tricorder can do all the can stuff that and more than the the big satchel could. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean it's because we don't understand the technology that we're saying it doesn't necessarily fit maybe. Nice. Also uh, of note is before they get the face pistols, like Reed is super happy to get the face pistols in the pilot. But they have that scene in the in the snow. They don't yet have them. And so they're using a different kind of gun and uh, you can tell it's not a phaser because it shoots little blasts. Mm. It's more like a Han Solo gun. Aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. Like sparks really. Just like little <laughs> sparks of energy. <laughs> 
it cannot do the, like the sustained beam. Yeah, uh, you can see right. the Suliban have like a sustained beam, and they've got actual phasers. Uh, then he opens his box, and he's got like the face pistols that that become that you see on the show all the time. Right. Uh, and those those ones have larger capacity, so they're bigger. There are differences there, even within within the show. Within the show itself, nice. So, is it enough? That the technology is more basic, you know, it's the freight transporter and the the grappler on the ship instead of a tractor beam yeah. and the, the ionized plating instead of shields. shields. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are things that I always thought about too, Cisco. I mean, the grapplers instead of the tractor beam mm-hmm. always jumped out to me. The um, phaser cannons that they have to install on the Enterprise, you know, that they're not as powerful, they're not as accurate. They fire missiles, you know, they're again a sort of a... Uh, a hark back to you know current times certainly not photon torpedoes or anything like that i've sort of always felt like all of those things again they're attempting to do something that is in the past within the continuity of star trek even though if now we might think it's not necessarily that far in our future uh, and at the same time you know i always thought a good example of that was uh, you know just the fact that you don't have a, a talking computer you know they don't talk to mm. the computer in Enterprise like they do in all of the other series. But, of course, you know, we, we all talk to our phones now, uh, which is sort of almost the same thing. But, again, it was something that fit, I think, was a smart decision within the world of Star Trek. And the the Universal Translator was clunky. Oh, yes. And, yeah, program and, and that, yeah, that gave a lot of things to do for Hoshi. You know, Hoshi is not a hoo just like punching buttons. She's got to work at it. You know, she's got to work with the languages. So that was all very analog and interesting. But the question is, yeah, would that have been enough? Like, is it enough for, well, I can't even say that of Discovery because they've got like strange technologies in there. (laughs) (laughs) And and still, they're supposed to be like Pike era. So it's not that far out. But would it have been enough? Like, say they had gone like a more Discovery route where they would have updated things a lot more. Do you think as a prequel, it would have, worked well enough just to have that older tech but then have a more modern contemporary aesthetic would that still have worked or did they really need to do what they actually did which is keep it analog and and almost play that as a theme i think they made the right decision that's my personal opinion i remember all the criticisms of it back then but in my opinion they seem to consciously be trying to do a prequel within the timeline of star trek and i feel you know, I, I applaud the creators for at that point in time saying, you know, we don't want to do another show set right after Voyager and Deep Space Nine. We want to do something during this period of time in the past that there hasn't been a lot done to, a lot of stories told about. And I love that because, you know, I want to know more about the entire Star Trek universe, the whole, you know, the whole foundation of it to, you know, where it can go, not just spend all the time within a small confined 15 or 20 year period. So I think it's a a great concept for this. And I think they made the right decisions. I think that, you know, a lot of fans back at that point in time, they weren't willing, I don't think, to try to give it, you know, a break because they had for how many years, 15 years or more, there had been, you know, from TNG to Deep Space Nine to Voyager, you'd had that progression all in line. And I think people wanted, you know, the next story there. So I think there was a lot of disappointment with them going back. To me, it was very exciting because I was thinking, well, I've seen all of that era. Let me see another era. And I think they consciously really 
you know, attempted to do a good prequel. And it's not a prequel where, you know, the, the end is predestined. They've got plenty of uh, wiggle room to tell stories within there. So th- it wasn't a bad decision to do a prequel. A- and to me, it just fits, you know, it, and not only does it fit within the technology and the props and the sets and the costumes, it also fits within the ideology because it's about discovery and exploration and, you know, humans becoming better and uh, sort of that's what the show's about. And I think that works as a prequel, uh, in my opinion. Ruth, I probably talked too much. What oh, do you think? I would say um, <laughs> for me, it is what resonates with me is if it's capturing the spirit of the original and you can see that they use some craftsmanship as far as sets, writing props, uh, thinking through the technology, thinking through the history. And I think that's to be applauded because they've set out what I think they accomplished. And it was very satisfying entertainment to me and added to and enriched the world of Star Trek for me. And it's not completely random either to go back because this is really, it's a prequel to Star Trek, but it's a sequel or it's launching out of First Contact, which was a, was a massive hit. Right, right. So seeing Zephram Cochran's first mission there kind of launched this, and the, you can th- there is a connective tissue right in the pilot about that. You know, two of the best episodes of the last season, in a mirror darkly, they you know have some scenes directly from First Contact in there to tell that different mirror universe story. So yeah, there's a lot of connected tissue. That's a really good point, Siskoid. And it's interesting you bring up the mirror universe episode because that one takes place, uh, you know, you see the Defiant, the original Defiant (laughs) from the Tholian web, and you see that those sets and those uniforms, this is telling you we have not retroactively changed it. Right. It's not like, oh, from now on, well, no. What you saw on TV in the 60s, that was just an interpretation, but really the technology was better than that. You know, it's just, we, you couldn't tell it right. <laughs> and of course, Kirk and Spock, you know, were in different sets and, you know, had different uniforms on that were more futuristic or modern looking. No, because <laughs> Enterprise takes you to that ship. No, it looks exactly like it did in TOS. So at some point, that becomes the aesthetic. Yes. Like some people have tried to win no prizes by saying that maybe this design that we see in TOS is actually another member of the Federation had like this aesthetic and it became popular. It became the style, but it is kind of alien looking. Uh, And just like the way the switches are made or whatever, the, the, the layouts and the colors are perhaps... I don't know. They're Tellarite. You know, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We're still skipping decades between the end of Enterprise and the beginning of TOS. I mean, just look at the difference between the 1920s and today. So there's a lot of time for it to become the original series. I think they were on the path to the original series. And I'm glad you mentioned the Defiant being in there. I always loved that about that episode because, you know, it's a prequel but it's also a sequel to the Tholian web because it sort of takes place after the Tholian web. Uh, right. So, you know, that's just a very imaginative episode. And, you know, to me, it was just, it was heartbreaking. It's like, you know, I love the original series. I love enterprise. Both of them were the only two Star Trek shows ever to be canceled. I think they both were canceled prematurely by network executives who didn't get Star Trek. Um, you know, UPN had, had a Star Trek fan as the head of the network. It's first two seasons. It had, a new network head who didn't like Star Trek during its third and fourth seasons. I think they, they canceled it too soon, just as it was really getting to some great storytelling. Yeah, I agree. The shows in the modern era have done 
those old sets. Yeah. We, you've seen it on Deep Space Nine in the in the Trials and Tribulations. Things, yeah. You've seen, yeah, Scotty summons it up in Relics on uh, on the Enterprise D. So that aesthetic is part of canon, and there's no getting away from it. Right. Except now in the <laughs> the, the new shows. When we see Pike's Enterprise, it does not look like Pike's Enterprise in the cage. Right. And the uniforms are slightly different. And, the you know, so they're not going back to that aesthetic because a show today cannot look like that if it's going to take place in that era. It's not like a throwback. It's not like a wink. It's not a tribute. No, no. It's really taking place in that time. And we just have to update it. Can we live with this, guys? Well, for me, I think... Retcons are a necessary evil of any long-running show. You know, for Star Trek to have lived more than 50 years, for you and I, we're all three Doctor Who fans, for Doctor Who to have lived, you know, well over 50 years, I think retcons are a necessary evil because technology changes, but also people's tastes change. And if a show is going to grow and survive, it sort of has to change with that. From my standpoint, and I don't, you know us, we always like to be positive. So I don't want to get into, you know, nitpicking or criticizing. At the same time, the most important thing to me is if a Star Trek show maintains the ideals of discovery and exploration and people can become better and the Federation can be a force for good, then, you know, I can accept a certain degree of retcon. You know, I don't have to imagine that, oh, well, maybe Discovery is in the Kelvin universe instead, and that's why it looks completely different. I I don't need to try to do things like that. I can enjoy the show if the show just has the essence of Star Trek and and let me enjoy it. So I, I have hope for Strange New Worlds and that it's going to, you know, embrace that essence of Star Trek. And if so, I'll be happy. Oh, if the values are there... And the sense of accomplishing what the foundation and the essence of the show is, I'm okay with it. And I can also kind of do my own retcons in my head if I don't like something. So I can do my own edits. (laughs) (laughs) Your own no prizes. Yeah, your own headcanon. Right. Yeah, and I I loved Anson Mount's Captain Pike. So I love that interpretation. Yes. So I, I can't wait for that show to kick off. The same way with us. We are very much looking forward to Strange New Worlds. I'm, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic based on everything I've read about it and what I've seen so far through Discovery. I, I just have some hope for Strange New Worlds. I'm glad you're not curmudgeons about this because I do have friends who are uh, and they know who they are and they're listening. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, the the new era of Trek has, has ruffled some feathers, and I know that part of it is this sort of retconning of the past. Some of it is the updating of uh, tastes, which makes it, you know, makes some of the shows more violent or you know, more curse words and that kind of stuff, which I, I don't necessarily enjoy as part of the formula. Right. I don't think that's necessary, but uh, there it is, and it doesn't re- necessarily hamper the storytelling as far as I'm concerned. And then for the people that you were mentioning earlier who wanted to know what happens next after Voyager, you know, in that timeline, um, or after Nemesis, really, because the movies kept us up to date, you know, every few years. Well, they've got lower decks, and <laughs> I love that show, but I'm sure those same fans are, are you know, some of them are going like this this crazy cartoon that that takes the piss out of uh, Star Trek uh, (laughs) is not the future that I wanted to know about, (laughs) you know? And then because they've said the same thing about Picard, which is, you know, of course, decades on, 
and decades on, the Federation's in trouble morally. Mm-hmm. So again, it's like, that's not Star Trek to me. Well, it, it, it's about bringing the Federation back from the brink. You know, it's like, it's still about that. It's just encapsulated in, in this case, one man, Captain Picard, rather than, you know, the entire system. To me, it's all Star Trek. I'm glad that you guys are keeping it positive because we're getting a lot more Trek than we dared hope. I would rather see Trek grow and change and survive than stop and die. I guess we have to end on that. (laughs) (laughs) Except that I wanted to give you a chance to pimp your projects. What's next for the Rad Network? (laughs) Well, thank you, Siskoid. It's so much fun to be on this show. You know, we've done podcasts together before, but it's so wonderful to talk about Star Trek with you. And yes, so uh, if anyone's hearing us for the first time on this, please come over to the Rad Adventures Network. That's Rad. It's short for Ruth and Darren, R-A-D. You can go to radadventuresnetwork.com. You can find all of our various podcasts. We do Trekker Talk, which, as Siskoid said, isn't about Trek or isn't about Star Trek. It's about Ron Randall's Trekker, a sci-fi bounty hunter comic series that we love. Um, we have Warlord Worlds about the comics of Mike Grell. We have Xenozoic Xenophiles about uh, the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series from Mark Schultz. Uh, also on Rad Adventures Network, you'll just find one-off little episodes of other things we like. Uh, so, you know, please come and listen. But I will, because of us talking about Star Trek, I will throw in a plug for Trekker Talk Episode 20. Because even though that podcast is not about Star Trek... Uh, because a lot of people think that it is sometimes, but we're Star Trek fans as well. And Ron Randall, who does the comic Trekker, is a Star Trek fan. We have a very nice collection of uh, drawings of the original cast uh, from the original series, all by Ron Randall. They look amazing. So in episode 20, which was released in September 2016, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, we did an episode where we share all of our Star Trek memories, our whole history. So if you want a little bit more of that, You can listen to that. Plus, we cover Ron Randall and Al Williamson's Star Trek Unlimited comic series that they did together. So you get a little bit of Star Trek comics and our Star Trek history. So Trekker Talk, episode 20. Yeah, it all goes back to, I mean, this show was a 50th anniversary project Mm -hmm. as well. So it started around the same time. Thanks for being with me, Ruth and Darren. I know you have to slingshot around the sun to get back to your time. But I'll stick around in my time zone, you know, an hour ahead, for Subspace Transmissions. That's Star Trek news and your feedback on our previous episode. Hi, I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. 
Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. Incoming subspace transmissions. A couple days before the previous episode of Gimme That Star Trek was dropped, just in time to not be included in its subspace transmissions, it was announced that Kate Mulgrew would reprise the role of Catherine Janeway in the Nickelodeon animated series Star Trek Prodigy. As to whether she helps launch the show or is a recurring character remains to be seen. Big month for Janeway as her fictional autobiography uh, just came out. It's actually written by Una McCormick. And the Captain Janeway monument in her future birthplace of Bloomington, Indiana, was officially unveiled. With Mulgrew in virtual attendance to say a few words. In between podcasts, Lower Decks ended on a high note. And Discovery Season 3 started on one. It wasn't long until it was announced the show was renewed for a fourth season. Head producer Alex Kurtzman, in fact, announced a variety of Trek shows were planned through 2027, including many more years of Discovery. The UK's Royal Mail is issuing two sets of Star Trek stamps, each with a character from the sixth live-action series, plus a smaller set focused on the three eras of Trek movies. When Canada issued some Star Trek stamps around the 50th anniversary, I had friends in the U.S. asking me to mail them some. So, UK listeners, you've been warned. CBS, Paramount, Amazon, and IDW Publishing are teaming up for a month-long Star Trek promotion in November. Amazon customers who spend more than $25 U.S. on select Star Trek DVDs and Blu-rays these appear to be the new Trek stuff and complete series collections, will receive three free digital Star Trek comics from IDW Publishing through Amazon's Comixology. Specifically, Star Trek Picard Countdown number one, Star Trek Year 5 number one, and Star Trek Discovery Aftermath number one. Nothing says Christmas like the Mirror Universe. Uh, Hallmark is coming out with Christmas tree ornaments based on the episode Mirror Mirror. There'll be three new keepsake ornaments uh, Mirror Sulu, Mirror Kirk, and Mirror Uhura, and a large tree topper, uh, light up sound effect enabled enterprise with remote control. Make it point left for Mirror Universe power, I guess. The last piece of news is a rather strange one. Uh, just in time for Voyager's 25th anniversary, Dutch scientists have created a 10-micrometer-long USS Voyager, about the size of bacteria. Uh, and it can fly, or really swim, under its own power with a chemical reaction. They also 3D printed a tiny tugboat and some more abstract shapes. Ultimately, these tiny machines will have medical applications when inserted into the bloodstream, if they can figure out how to make them do more complex actions. Star Trek is still very much an inspiration to scientists today. And now a selection of your comments on our previous episode, The Bolian Spotlight with Ryan Blake. Chris Franklin chimed in saying uh, it was an interesting discussion and a nice conspiracy theory from Ryan. It occurred to me, he says, given their blue skin and their fixation on using the word bowl with seeming interchangeability in their language, the Bolians are the Federation's Smurfs. If a Bolian does become a main character in a Trek production, maybe they should introduce their true adversarial race, the Gargamaloids. Chris, I think you've broken it wide open. Also, a shout out to Tim Price, who says, I don't think my favorite Bolian was mentioned. 
the one with the darker blue band through the center of her face and is also a cyborg, works for her dad, the big purple guy. I think her name is Nebola. Yes, Tim, I didn't bring up Nebolia uh, because it gave Ryan ammunition you know, regarding his paranoid theory. And on that pun, the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I have to say, has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So if you like our content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list, like Doug Van Diver, who is now captain of the battlecruiser USS Potemkin. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter, where we are, FW Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Spotify. And until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. 